Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVNH Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science or business management in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BVNA Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hi, Scott. Hi, Eric. It's great to be joining you again, and it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today. Michael Hallsworth is the Managing Director of North America of the Behavioral Insights Team, also known as the BIT. Michael is a leading figure in the development of, of the application of behavioral science to government and public policy. He's the author of several influential frameworks, such as Mindspace, and his work has been published in many, many leading ac economics and public policy journals. Prior to joining the BIT, Michael was a senior policy advisor in the cabinet office of the UK government. And prior to that, he earned his PhD in behavioral economics from Imperial College in London. Michael is the co-author with Elspeth Kirkman of a new book entitled Behavioral Insights, which I'm sure that we'll be speaking about today. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, both of you. It's, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, I would like to, to start, Michael, with uh, your background and uh, early career. Uh, we would love if you could start off by sharing with us a little bit of history on your personal journey and what got you especially interested in behavioral science. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was working at a think tank called the Institute for Government, uh, looking at how to um, apply evidence to improve the way the government works. And um, one of the concepts or ideas that was, you know, interesting to people in the, in the noughties was behavioral science, which um, was becoming increasingly prominent. Um, and, you know, partly to with the, the publication of Nudge, um, and so we actually got a commission to um, look into the practical implications uh, of these ideas to governments um, while I was at the Institute. And we wrote the Mindspace report um, on the basis of kind of surveying that, that literature. And that was in late 2009. So I, I, up to that point, I'd been involved in... Um, you know, evidence-based policymaking. And this was just, I suppose, a new um, and relevant type of evidence. And from there, I went into kind of applying um, that, the, you know, those findings in practice uh, inside governments. Um, yeah, so it, I came from a kind of, you know, evidence-based policymaking angle to all this. Could you tell us uh, more about any mentors that had a strong influence uh, on you at that time, and perhaps also uh, an experiment or a research or an insight that had a significant impact on your thinking and also your interest in behavioral science. Yeah, so the, in terms of um, studies that, that influenced me, if I cast my mind back, there are two that... Um, you know, we looked at um, in the Mindspace report that have stayed with me or that, that really, you know, um, made me think, uh, you know, there, there's something really interesting here. And, you know, you can not only take a different perspective to issues, but also you can get really high quality evidence about what works. And the two that I think stayed with me were first um, uh, an experiment that... Um, Gabby Judah and some colleagues did, uh, which was published in 2009 um, to do with hand washing, which obviously has become even more relevant recently. And I really liked it because what they did was they they um, ran experiments in real world settings in um, motorway service stations in the UK. So, you know, where people would go and uh, buy 
um, uh, buy items, but also use the bathroom. And so they ran experiments where they displayed different messages um, in the, in the bathrooms to uh, to persuade people to wash their hands or to just to provide information. Um, and I think these are on LED displays, and they could switch the messages, rotate them in a structured way. Um, and they grouped these messages into different categories. Some were kind of informational about um, you know the risk of disease, and some were kind of disgust oriented. Um, things like soap it off or eat it later. I remember one of them. And what I think was really interesting is they they didn't just ask people afterwards, you know, did you wash your hands? Did you notice a, a, a message? Because, you know, all the problems with that, they um, had electronic um, uh, soap dispensers that could measure the amount of soap that was dispensed um, when different messages were being displayed. And that means it's kind of naturalistic. Um, you get a really good quality data and it's highly relevant to the real world because it took place in the real world. And they showed some really interesting results about the kinds of messages that affected um, people. And there were big gender differences, for example. Um, I remember that uh, I think it was men responded much more to the disgust messages and women more to the kind of informational messages. I just thought it was extremely interesting and I could see how it was so well set up um, and it was quite inspiring. Um, The other one, which I want to highlight, which came out around that time, which I thought was great, was um, from Neil Stewart, who I think was then at University of Warwick and may still be there. And this was around minimum payment amounts on credit card statements. And so his experiment was that he um, he uh, randomly allocated whether people saw uh, a minimum payment amount on credit card statements. Um, and saw the effect on how much people repaid of their of their bill, and so he found that you know when a credit card statement had a two percent minimum payment uh, amount on it, people repaid. I think it was about hundred pounds of of uh, about four hundred and fifty pound bill on average. But when there was no minimum payment displayed, the average repayment was high. It was about hundred hundred seventy five pounds. So in other words, the the minimum payment amount was dragging payments down, which is not great for consumers because obviously credit card debt can be expensive. I just thought that, thought that was really great because again, it's the real world. You can see how something is almost counterintuitive or non-obvious impact of something that's happening day to day. And it kind of points to a wider lesson around you know how you might think of new systems, new regulations and so on. Those are two that came to mind, um, you know, when you asked that question. Mm-hmm. Okay, clear, very interesting. And any mentor that you could mention, or? Well, I mean, the, the obvious one is is Dave David Halpin, who um, was was my boss actually at the Institute of Government, and I kind of set up the Behavioral Insights team. And so, what I've taken from him is, um, you know, a real commitment to um, to try and think creatively about how you can come up with new ways of approaching a problem, new um, new solutions, and thinking quite kind of in a sophisticated way around how you can not just use the same old kind of policy tools, but adopt a more sophisticated approach to say, like setting up a regulated market, thinking more about how people behave in that market rather than just say regulation is regulation, for example. Uh, Michael, I'd like to follow up a little bit more on... on, on that you mentioned, David, and um, just hear a little bit more about the beginning of the BIT. I'm really curious how you were able to generate support for it when there really wasn't another model out there at that time. I believe you were really trailblazing in that respect. I mean, we should all say that hindsight bias is very powerful. And so there's a story you, you tell yourself after the event, um, which is very, very coherent uh, and so on. And, um, you know, who knows if it was actually like that. So we talk about this bit in, in the book, Elspeth and I, and we, I mean, we, we don't go into a massive amount of detail, but I think it was important that there were a few things that the bit prioritized. One was the evaluation side of things, because it could have been that we just went out there and tried to apply some of this thinking without testing it. Um, and not only would that be, I think, 
risky and a bad idea because we might do more harm than good, but also having results and really trying to make sure the results were, were reliable is quite persuasive. So you could go to a meeting and say, here is a particular area of government that maybe people haven't thought about too much, but which is very important. And the example that I worked on quite a bit was, you know, tax compliance, because that's fundamentally important to government, but is sometimes kind of seen as a less interesting activity. And say, look, well, this way of doing things uh, had this impact, and that means this much revenue to you. And I would say, surprisingly, that kind of data or feedback on performance doesn't come along in in policymaking as much as you might think. Um, weirdly, I mean, it, it seems strange saying that, but people really responded really well to it. So um, that focus on evaluation was important. I think also um, we had this kind of this sunset clause um, when we were set up. Uh, so, you know, if we hadn't achieved certain things, we'd, we'd clo- be closed down by default in two years. So that's a nice example also of, you know, behavioral science. Um, but it, it meant that we focused on, on the goals, which were, you know, try to transform at least two major areas of policy, um, you know, spread this understanding throughout the civil service um, and achieve, uh, I think it was a tenfold return on the cost of the team. So in the book, we go through how each of those three things um, was was influential um, and led to, you know, particular prior, prioritization. Um, you know, and, and for example, the, the spreading the understanding of the approach through the civil service meant that we were very clear that this is like an approach, uh, uh, almost like a, a method rather than just a set set of findings. And therefore it can be applied widely. Do you see what I mean? So th- that was really important. Um, and I think also one thing, just go back to the hindsight bias, is um, luck, really. You know, I think there was some luck involved. Um, you know, if if we had, I suppose, chosen a different area or um, you know, a different policy area, and um, you know, not not got certain results uh, earlier on, maybe it would have been different. I, I was curious just to, to phrase that in a different way. Is there anything with the benefit of hindsight that you might have done differently? Now that you can look back on that experience, maybe in terms of areas you did choose to focus on, um, or perhaps other other things. It's, it's a good question. I think there definitely are things. Um, uh, I can think of things that didn't work out in terms of you know experiments where we got null results. That definitely happened. Well, no, one other way to potentially uh, think about it is you, you mentioned experiments where you didn't see movement, and and I sometimes think people learn more from that. <laughs> so if there's one that comes top of mind where you really thought you were about to change something, and then at the end of the day it didn't happen, I'd, I'd be curious to hear that. If if there's something, you I think share. I may have talked about this on, on another podcast, which um, you said. Know, so Bear that in mind, and if you if you don't think it's a good one, then then cut it. But um, we definitely have had things that didn't work, and we we published them in our annual updates. And in fact, we have I remember a big journal article on, on a massive null result um, uh, to do with prompting honesty. Uh, you know, you you may be familiar with the kind of capture thing where you you have to put in to show you're not a, a robot online. And we tried putting different messages in the capture before people completed their tax filing, I think it was. Um, and there was an extremely precise null result. So we published all those. But I, I think what what was, you know, the, what was interesting, if I think back to a few examples, one was around... Um, smoking and pregnancy. So we, we were asked, could you try and reduce smoking during pregnancy because of the impact on um, neonatal health, uh, low birth weights, all that kind of thing. And we hypothesized that it, it may be that um, 
people are willing or have the intention to, to quit smoking during pregnancy, but find it difficult to do so. And we further thought that maybe the moment um, when you find out you are pregnant could be quite a powerful one as a, as a kind of teachable moment. Uh, and in fact, when we talked to academics who specialize in the field, they, they said, you know, this has not really been uh, studied too much. So it's an interesting area. And what we ended up doing was um, teaming up with um, a, an academic who works on um, text message support systems for quitting smoking, actually amongst amongst pregnant women. And we were also collaborated with a supermarket. So what we did was we put stickers on pregnancy tests, um, which directed people to the stop smoking service, the text message service, free to sign up, um, thinking that, you know, we'll test to see if that moment does make a difference. And you have to factor all kinds of things in. Obviously, a lot of the tests will be negative, um, uh, you know, and so on. But we thought it was, you know, it had at least the, the, the fundamentals for being successful, we thought, were there. But in fact, hardly anyone signed up for it. The, the, the take-up was really low. And we basically concluded that that approach, that route, wasn't going to work. Um, which I think tells us something, maybe. Um, it was, you know, fairly, fairly well set up. It was in real supermarkets. Um, but it just didn't work. Another question I had was, and I guess maybe looking at the other way, is, is, is reflecting on the success. I mean, you, you spoke to one or two factors that you think really um, lay the groundwork for your success or for the success of the unit as it started, you know, the measurement that you mentioned. Um, but I'm curious when you look at the success in the UK relative to um, elsewhere in the world, whether you see differences in patterns between what's going on um, in, in applying behavioral science to policy, you know, and what you've been doing versus some of the experiences around the world in, in other countries. Um, do you feel like they've adopted and learned from the experience that, that you've had or um, have they run into other issues? I think it's, uh, it's a really difficult question because I think there has been, there definitely has been success and, a lot of our, our goal was to just kind of spread this approach um, and encourage people to sort of think, I suppose, think critically about assumptions that, that may be in current practices and say, you know, that there is a there is a, a collection of evidence that you could use that, that would make things better or, or may produce results and can you test it and so on. I, I think that has become more widespread and has had beneficial effects. So I think good has, good has happened because of, of this wider approach that's spread out. And we, we talk about the, the evolution of it in, in the book. Um, I think there have been successes and failures. That's, that's for sure. Um, and it's difficult to disentangle why some attempts have been more successful. I think the, requirements can be quite demanding. So what I mean by that is what you may want is, is, is a team that is both kind of very well um, informed about the evidence, can, can kind of read it critically, say knows how to run experiments if that's something that you know, is, is seen as important. I, I, I would argue it is. But then also can work in organizations and understand their priorities and understand how to talk and present this evidence in a way that makes sense to people and fits with their priorities. And then similar to that, you also need people who care about practical details. You know, the hard work being working out how things actually get done, how systems work, who is, what, what, um, what electronic system is being used to um, generate messages, to send messages, who is in charge of that system. Um, and you only get to that if you do work and, you know, you, you go and visit people and you go to the actual, uh, you know, um, sites and say, 
what's going on here and how can I how can I help and can I understand in some depth? And I would say those those things that's a lot to bring together. Um, and it doesn't always happen. And then you have this other factor of, of, um, luck really as well. I think, I think it's probably a bit easier in some respects now, but now that we have had 10 years of people trying to do this and certainly we didn't have any real, um, script when we were doing it, but it, it's still difficult. A lot, a lot of the a lot of the factors have to come together in, in kind of the right the right moment and the right confluence. Um, I was curious a little bit also as well about the, the public sector government relative to the private sector. Um, you know, behavioral science is one of the few areas I can think of where public sector or government adoption has actually been probably arguably at a faster rate than in the private sector. Uh, I was curious on your thoughts on that and. And maybe the differences you might see between um, the work that you've done on the government side as opposed to work with private sector organizations. I think it's a really great question. Um, I'll, I'll have a go answering it, but I'm, I'm conscious that my experience is more on the, on the public sector um, side. It, you know, in the book, we talk about how uh, this. Um, this interest in, in behavioral science has been, I suppose, building for a long time in, in the public sector. Um, you know, governments have kind of always been influenced in, sorry, governments have always been interested in, in, in how people, why people behave in ways and how maybe that can be influenced. Um, we can, t- we talk in the book about how that's often been the domain of economics and um, economic, um, ec- economists as uh, expert advisors, and when things developed, it was in the guise of behavioral economics. It was a bit easier for um, maybe policymakers to adopt it because they were familiar with the language of economics, and um, this was like an addition to that, like a, a kind of souping up of, of economics, and you know it, they they could retain the kind of frameworks of cost benefit analysis that. Um, that they were familiar with and just add in this kind of better evidence, I suppose, and new angles and things. And there was also demand, um, I would argue, for new approaches, new thinking post-financial crisis and with the kind of rise of people talking about evidence-based policy around the world. So I think it was a demand boost and a supply boost from the, the public sector. In terms of the, um, in the private sector, I mean, I'm going to really generalize here and say that what I think was going on was that you, you had a kind of division in the, in the private sector between a kind of experimentation philosophy. So, you know, Capital One were running, um, I think, 60,000 RCTs a year 20 years ago, according to um, uh, Jim Manzi in his, his book, uh, Uncontrolled, I think it's called. He talks about experimentation in the private sector. So that was that was definitely happening. And in fact, we know this is happening a lot in the private sector. But I'm going to kind of make a crude generalization saying, certainly in the past, maybe less so now, a lot of that was quite unfocused and was less informed by um, theory or, or evidence or thinking about what are you trying to test in a structured way. A lot of it was, let's just try this different color or something like that. Um, Again, I'm highly generalizing here, so um, I, I don't want to say this is completely true because it's not, but in general terms, that may have been what's going on. So throwing things at walls, seeing what sticks, let's take that and let's just go with it and, and not think about too much why that's happening. And on the other side, you had undoubtedly the use of you know psychology to, to sell products. We all know that going back to Vance Packard in the, the 50s, um, Hidden Persuaders and so on, well-known, but that wasn't really trialed and experimented in the, in the same way. Um, it was kind of like, oh, here's, here's the idea of the theory and let's let's do it because here's the evidence for it or here's the, the thinking behind it. And I'm going to say that in a big generalization, what's happened is the two things have come together much more um, in the private sector. Uh, and part of that was, I think, was was prompted by 
behavioral economics. Um, I'm going to say behavioral economics. We know that the term is high, you know, is highly contested. We talk about behavioral insights in the book and behavioral science and so on. But, you know, behavioral economics has a big experimental focus as well. You know, think about Kahneman and Tversky's experiments and so on. And they they brought together, obviously, the, the psychological dimension with the experimental dimension. And I think when people saw that in the private sector, popularized by Nudge, by Dan Ariely and so on, they thought, okay, this is quite powerful. We've, it, gave, it gives us kind of stories that people can relate to in business. I'm going to generalize like massively here about why people do things. They're interesting. We can explain them, but also we can, we can then generate results that, that speak to the bottom line um, by running experiments. So with the massive caveat that I don't do as much work in the private sector, that's how I see the change coming about in the last 10 to 15 years. No, it's very interesting you say that because I, I do think, um, uh, one of our colleagues, Richard Chataway, talks a lot about uh, test and learn. And um, th- I think that's a term that really resonates very, very strongly and clearly in the, with the private sector um, and is something they can relate to. Whereas when you start speaking about behavioral science, I, I think they don't always know where to put it, so to speak, and, and whose role it is and whose responsibility it is. And that, that can always be a challenge. Um. Eric, do you want to pick up and, and talk about um, and, and focus more on the on the book and, and, and go from there? Exactly. As you uh, mentioned, uh, Michael has just published a new book, Behavioral Insight, which you co-authored with uh, Elspeth Kirkman. Can you tell us a bit about, first, your motivation for writing this book? Because I have written three books and I know that it is not so easy to decide to make this effort. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's a funny story about how we started doing it. So um, Elspeth and I wrote some blogs um, for the Behavioral Scientist website um, magazine about what behavioral science can learn from literature. So looking at different kind of, you know, looking at books, at Charles Dickens and so on, and showing how there were concepts in those works which either are, are illuminated by behavioral science or which can illuminate behavioral science. And uh, editor at MIT Press read them and asked us, do you want to write a book? <laughs> now, at this stage, it wasn't really clear what the book would be about, but something about, about behavioral science. And... Um, after some kind of thought, we we thought, well, I'm not sure the world needs another introduction to behavioral economics or behavioral science as such, but there is this idea of behavioral insights, which people talk about, but it's sometimes quite vague. What, is it, what exactly is it? Um, obviously, we, we call the behavioral insights team. Um, and we said, well, actually, we do think it is a thing, um, which brings together some different concepts and aspects. Um and so we, first of all, wanted to explain what it is, um, give some examples, talk about how it can be applied in practice, and then talk about the, the future. So it was, it was a real attempt to, to come up with something which was accessible um, and interesting to people who kind of heard about this term or this area, but wanted just like, you know, give it to me straight. What is, what is this about and why is it relevant to me? Um, why should, why should I care and what can I do with it? Um, and so that's, that's what we're trying to do, a kind of short introduction to that um, uh, and answer those questions. Okay, great. Um, first, so your title is Behavioral Insight. So the easy question is, how would you define behavioral insight? Yeah, so we say that there are three aspects that make behavioral insights. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. We say there are three aspects that together make up um, this idea of behavioral insights. So the first one is, uh, unsurprisingly, evidence about behavior. And um, this is where you get your findings around what, what drives behavior. Um, it, if, you know, if you're going to boil it down to anything, we argue that um, the kind of the insight or the specific contribution here is around dual process theory. So in other words, um, People talk about system one, system two, the automatic system, the reflective system, but it boils down to the, the kind of, there are non-conscious drivers and influences on our behavior that have a greater um, effect on our actions than we tend to think or than we assume. 
Um, and we need to take it, that into account when designing policies or products or services. Um, yeah, and people have talked about this extensively, but you know, this kind of simplification between a, a, a fast, automatic, non-conscious, habitual way of thinking and a slow, considered, effortful um, uh, weighing up of costs and benefits on the other hand. Okay, so that's the first thing, evidence around behavior. The second thing is a practical focus. So coming from a kind of pragmatic and applied place, you know, because we were created within a government that was trying to accomplish certain things um, in the real world, um, we, we're not just here to to generate new findings or do things because they're interesting. Although, you know, if, if something is both impactful and um, interesting, that's that's fantastic. Um, but it's, you know, really caring about how things, how things are done, getting into the nuts and bolts, um, recognizing that how things are done is incredibly important and that you can't neglect the people who are involved in an organization uh, delivering something. So that pragmatic streak is, is the second thing. And then the third thing is this focus on evaluation, trying to work out what is happening um, what works for whom um, and when. And this is important because it tries to introduce a kind of humble streak or a, a, a skeptical um, streak into what you're doing that keeps you grounded and saying, you know, there's still so much we don't know. And frequently we think things will work, then they don't, or they have unexpected effects. And we try to address some of that by, you know, getting people to predict in advance what will work. Um, and then seeing later if that was the case. So that evalu- that focus on evaluation is the third thing. And you bring those three things together, and that's what we call kind of behavioral insights uh, approach. Okay, great. Very clear, which is uh, helpful, I think, for our listener. Uh, second is about uh, um, giving life to this uh, definition. And can you, uh, could you share uh, one or two concrete examples, as you did in your book, demonstrating the power of uh, this approach, behavior insight approach? The, yeah, there are so many examples, and, and the examples are, are, are really powerful, but... Um, one we quite liked because um, it was maybe one of the lesser known ones um, was this work that was done in a Chinese textile factory uh, to reduce workplace accidents. And I think that's kind of interesting because workplace accidents are an area which is sometimes, I don't know, from a, from a public sector perspective anyway, it falls in between a few different areas. So it's not sometimes not thought of as health um, and not so much in, in the kind of economy, but is, is super important um, and is a big cause of, um, you know, death and injury. And so I think maybe uh, sometimes it needs more attention, although obviously there is, I should say, a big focus in, in some areas around kind of human factors way for increasing safety, like in the nuclear power industry and so on. So anyway, um, workplace access is an an interesting issue. Um, In this example, um, you know, some of the workers were, had this habit of throwing um, waste scraps of cloth on the floor next to them, which created a kind of hazard from slipping. Um, And there was a, you know, financial explanation for this uh, in that people were, motivated to keep working without breaks because they were incentivized to do so. And the factory did try a kind of traditional approach to influencing this behavior. They offered a monetary incentive to workers if they put the waste in in the appropriate bins or uh, receptacles. And that didn't really work. Um, So this work was done instead by um, uh, Sherry Wu and Betsy Levy-Palak, who academics who said, well, instead, can we introduce some kind of meaningful visual clues or sorry, cues into the um, environment to shift behavior. And they, they kind of introduced these, these stickers or decals that, which depict these kind of golden coins and put them on the production floors. And these coins, um, so the paper says, are considered to symbolize fortune, good luck, meaning that people kind of had an 
instinctive aversion to cover them up, to put waste on them. And their paper, which um, you know, is published, shows that introducing these, these stickers led to a 20, 20% decline in waste on the floor. So what we've got there, which is interesting, is a kind of a contextually meaningful change to the design of the environment. You know, changing the way, you know, the immediate environment to overcome uh, an existing habit. And I choose that example partly also because it's not really a kind of communication example. So a lot of the time we we do talk about messages, and that's mainly because messages are quite cheap to implement and easy to measure, and you know when someone's got something uh, and so on. But they're not the only thing we do. We also do focus on, you know, the environment and how choices are structured. And I think that's a little bit different from, you know, some other area. You know, it's, it means it's not just a kind of a communications and marketing approach. It's also about, you know, wider kind of environmental structural things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what are the main challenges uh, where you think behavior insight is the most relevant, if any, except everything, which is what we want? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, almost exactly a year ago, I was doing a session at Um, the University of, of Pennsylvania, and I, they asked me the same question. Um, and I actually responded, and this is, people were there, so the, the, you know, the, there were witnesses. I said, I was most concerned about um, behavioral research for pandemics, because there was going to be a pandemic at some point. Um, and my view has, hasn't really changed um, in the last year. I still think that's really important. Um, we know that... Um, before a, a vaccine arrives, and indeed with the distribution of vaccines as well, there are so many crucial kind of aspects of, of, of this big problem um, that are behavioral um, and that, that implicitly or explicitly are depending on people acting a certain way. And obviously there's been a, a ton of research that's come out on this recently. Um But I still think some interesting aspects are, are around behavior are, are, are not going examined, maybe because things are happening too quickly. For example, a big one would be around mask wearing. Obviously, I live in the United States. It's a, it's a really big issue right now. But if you go around and you observe how people are, are behaving in terms of mask wearing, it seems that there is, from my observation, um, an element of reciprocity going on. So I, I don't want to just give you some kind of naive observations, but if you go to, uh, you know, in, I live in New York state. If you go to different parts of New York state, um, it seems that people, you know, will at least carry around a mask and put one on if you're wearing one or because you're, you seem to be taking it seriously. So what I'm trying to get out there is, there's an element of reciprocity, I think, going on, which has not been fully explored. And of course, we, we know that people tend to get locked into self-sustaining behaviors um, based on what their peers are doing. But I think there are some nuances to do with mask wearing, which is really interesting about when people think it's a, like those, those obligations kick in, where it's appropriate to do or not do it, which seem incredibly important But it, everything's happening so quickly that they're not really going, they're not really being examined, I think. So suffice to say, I think there are, there are many questions where, you know, the psychology and behavioral science is really important to do with um, pandemic-related behaviors. But, you know, maybe we'll come back to that later because I know it's, it's a big issue. Yeah, yeah, please. Um... Can I uh, ask you, we will recommend for sure to our listener to uh, read your book, but could you summarize several key points from the book which uh, you would like readers to take away? Okay, so I'm going to just do this quickly. Um, you know, there are uh, six chapters in the book. I'm going to give you like the one minute kind of summary. One, The first thing we do is we kind of talk about what is behavioral insights Um And I just went through all that. The second is, what's the history of it? Why has it come about? What's the evidence behind it? We talk about, you know, the birth of 
um, empirical economics. We talk about why governments got interested, which I also mentioned. Um, and why did it all come together in the last 10 years to kind of produce this explosion of interest and this growth of a kind of an ecosystem in the public and private sector? We give some examples. I just mentioned one. And then we talk about how you apply in practice. And we kind of give this guide about how you would approach a problem and try to um, do things differently based on these uh, this, this evidence and this approach. And then we, we get to the... The, the last bit of the book is around criticisms. And that was quite enjoyable to write as well, because, um, <laughs> you know, having spent 10 years reading all these critiques, then it was quite interesting to express them all in your own words. Um, what are the limitations of this approach? What isn't it doing? What what more could it do? And um, is it a distraction from other, other ways of working? Um, and then finally, last chapter is, what's the future? Where should it be going? What new ideas should it be drawing on? Um, how can it change and how should it change? And will its potential be fulfilled? So those are the kind of things we want to cover in, in the book. Uh, if I come back on uh, uh, the idea of the practice applied behavioral uh, insight, uh, what do you think is key to be successful at using behavioral insight based on your experience? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I'm going to say that a sense of how to translate abstract concepts into reality. And I'll explain by what I mean by that. You can, you can come up with the, the evidence and the theory and, and, and say, According to the best available evidence and these theories, this is how we should construct a particular message, say. And I remember doing this when I was working in the tax authority and developing letters to send to people. There was a particular theory that was, you know, I don't know, potentially powerful. Um, uh, and it kind of implied that you should construct a message in one particular way. But when I constructed the message according to that evidence and that theory, it was just wrong and it didn't read the right way. And I, I knew it wasn't going to, it was going to seem weird to people. And so what I mean by that, by this point is, it's really important to have a sense of whether something will work for people and to kind of be willing to change it, if not. And I'm not sure how that sense is developed, but I've seen its absence and it tends to lead to something that is just, you know, in retrospect, you think, oh, well, I can see why that, that didn't work because it just doesn't come together in the right way. It's quite difficult to explain what I mean here, but I know it when I, I see it. So you can, you can almost like the, the, the single-minded application of, of theory without thinking in a more kind of nuanced way about where are people coming from and how they're going to really react to this is really important, I think. That kind of just sense of how's this going to play out really? And that's, yeah, I, I, it's difficult to kind of break that down and make it out in a very systematic way. But I think I found that to be quite important uh, over the last, you know, however many years. Well, as, as an American living in the UK and you're a, uh living in the U.S., I can't resist asking you a little bit about the differences between the two. Um, and I was curious if you've seen major differences in attitudes and approaches to behavioral science between the U.K. and the U.S., or, or maybe in the work itself that you're doing, the types of projects. Yeah, I've, this is something I've been asked before, and I always give a really disappointing answer, I think, I'm afraid, because I find that, I find what's interesting is the lack of differences. Um I don't, it's, it doesn't really strike me as particularly different. I, I think, obviously, um, a lot of the uh, seminal evidence was was produced in the US um, in, in this field, and so we're kind of familiar with it. Um, I have found, you know, if, if I had to really think about this, I would say something like, I've, I've noticed that... Um, the, the people who are interested in this field are distributed across more kind of academic departments in the US, like different 
disciplines have an interest in this stuff um, in a way that in some of the universities, it's like there is a behavioral science department and maybe economics is kind of interested a bit, but sometimes not. Um, but there's a, you know, the, the interest is broader here in, in terms of academic side of things. I would also say that um, from the, the opposite side, the practical side, the government side, um, it is really striking how more, how much more distributed power and resources is in uh, in the US, in the sense that um, I can speak to the UK, it's, it's more of a centralized system. Um, and most of my work was around central government in, in the UK, but here, um, obviously there are more layers of government. Um, you know, cities, states have real power, uh, and also non, um, governmental actors ha- seem to have a lot of influence as well. You know, this is not, I say that like I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised, but you know, there are large philanthropic actors here who do a lot in a way that doesn't happen in the same way in the UK, in, in my view. That's something, so, so this kind of more pluralistic and distributed um, sense, sense of power and resources is, is what struck me. But in terms of the kind of application of behavioral science, it's surprisingly similar. Speaking of the US and UK, uh, I can't resist asking for your perspective on how the US and UK governments are responding to the COVID crisis. Well, so I'm I, I'm really actually not very familiar with what the UK government is is doing. I think one thing I'd say about um, the COVID crisis is simplicity of communication is is really important. I think, and you can see a lot about how governments get the kind of you know what are you asking people to do. You know, what what really is important for stopping the spread of the virus? Now, I think that from what I've seen, the the UK government's slogan around hands, face, space is, as far as I can tell, not is pretty good because I, I can remember it. For example, when I know there's a, a competing one around the five C's or three C's, I think, which is you know, you, if you're cl- I think close and you're, you see, I can't actually remember what they are, but they're the, the things that drive virus spread and what it's basically about being indoors and talking at people in in a closed you know closed room is is really bad and i think this is more the approach that they had in japan which um i'm not saying is is clearly very effective but it's just interesting that i actually can't remember what it is right now so i think we found this a lot when we were doing experiments around running around hand washing um posters for example um, you know, this simplicity of communications, what, what leads people to re- recall what they were told in the poster or not. And we've done a lot of experiments now um, uh, in the US with cities around how you uh, should communicate most effectively um, to, uh, to people. Um, so, so it kind of cuts through and you, you're very clear about what behaviors you're asking people to do. But I think the, the, you know, there's just going to be a massive challenge coming up as well. I mentioned this briefly around communication around the vaccine. Um, I, I, obviously not just one vaccine, there are many vaccines. Um, in terms of, yes, there's a, there's a whole thing around trust, which is extremely important, um, which, which will be uh, a real challenge. And there are things you can think about here from behavioral science Um to combat misinformation. There's really interesting work being done on pre-bunking, uh, which is, you know, the, if you like the opposite of debunking, it's what you do before misinformation comes out. That I think it could be really widely spread um, amongst elected officials, try to make it clear that if, if by the time misinformation is out there, you're, you're already in trouble. And so you need to get out ahead of that. Um, and I think also just managing expectations, managing expectations around how effective is this vaccine going to be? I think people may have the mental model that's going to be like a measles vaccine or something where, where it's completely dis- dis- disease eliminating, whereas it may be that it's just disease limiting. So you still kind of get it, but it's just not very bad. It's like a cold. And who will get it when? 
there is a danger that people have a false expectation about how soon they can get it when actually in a lower um, priority group and then they end up being quite ambivalent because, oh, well, you said I couldn't get it. So I think the danger of kind of mixed messages and all this kind of thing is quite large and requires some thought now. You know, you, you just spoke about misinformation, and sadly, that brings me uh, my my mind right to the U.S. presidential election. Um, and in fact, we are literally speaking on the day of the election. So I, I felt uh, we couldn't let you go without a question or two about this. Um, and it's less about who will win or anything along those lines. But I was, you know, the, the one very clear factor is the increase in polarization. Um, and I was curious your thoughts on how behavioral science might be applied to the challenge of depolarization um, and bringing people together regardless of, of who wins this uh, this election today. Have you done anything along that challenge, along the lines of that challenge? We've done, yeah. So it's a really interesting issue and there are, there are organizations specifically focused on this um, around depo- depolarization. Uh, we're doing some really interesting work. I, um, think about this, you know, there are some obvious things you, you can say, which I think people are beginning to realize now around, you know, first one being don't try and prove people wrong. So it doesn't work if you go in there and sort of say you were wrong and you were like completely being really stupid about this. And this is what you should be thinking. This is not going to work. Um, instead, um, you know, a better approach is is thinking about how you're saying to people how you can understand how they may have thought something at a particular point. Um, but now things have kind of changed. So you, you putting a kind of bridge out to people and not sort of denying their, their kind of agency and their in, intelligence. Um, Cause I think that's, that's evidence suggests that's really counterproductive. Um, I think framing is really important here. And we did a report a couple of years ago called Behavioral Government, which is all about how the policymaking process itself is subject to, you know, um, a set of biases that can lead to bad outcomes. And one thing we talked a lot about was was framing and how issues are um, presented. And this is highly relevant to, um, I suppose, politics. We talk, we talk about some of the really interesting work that's being done around metaphors, for example. And there's a study that's been done and replicated that, you know, if you talk about um, crime as uh, as a virus versus crime as a, as a beast um, or an animal, like preying on a city, one is versus one, you know, sorry, I'll say that again. So metaphors are really uh, important. And if you, you talk about, you know, People that were, I'm going to say this again, sorry. So you, there's an experiment where one group of people is, you know, presented um, information around crime rates and the metaphor is crime is like a kind of animal attacking the city and stalking its prey. The other one is like a metaphor around crime is kind of like a virus that's present in the environment in some ways. Um, and of course, like nowadays that would be more charged because people, it's on people's minds, but this is pre-pandemic. And the different metaphors that were used led people to prefer very different kind of policy priorities or options because the, the metaphors kind of framing the issue in a particular way that was very powerful. And so in the report, we talk about how you can do things around reframing. If people have got different frames on a, on a position that appear to be mutually exclusive, there are ways you can kind of try to bridge between them. And we talk about them, you know, they, they have different names like frame incorporation, frame reconnection, and um, uh, and, and frame synthesis. And I haven't actually got time to go into all these, but there's a real practical way you can make this work in terms of understanding the other person's frame they bring, the, the things that shape their worldview, and then finding ways to uh, either combine the frames or build a kind of bridge across those frames. And I think that's really, that's really important work. And, but, but it, it'll only really work if you, you understand really this idea of framing and how, how powerful it can be and how uh, implicit it, it is in views. Because just trying to uh, tackle the, 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 the dissension or the, 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 
the debate or um, what's the word I'm looking for? The disagreement head on just may not work. You need these alternative tools, I think. Okay, Michael, uh, we are close to the end of our conversation. So I'd like to end by asking you a bit about the future, which is the most difficult for sure. Uh, I was curious about your vision of the future of behavioral science. Where do you see things eating, both perhaps for yourself, for the BIT, and more generally for uh, our field? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so I think the one other problem for us writing the book was, you know, maybe it's been 10 years since the, the team was created and we want to look back on what's been accomplished. And I think there's been a lot of interest and a lot of things have been accomplished um, in the field as a whole. But, you know, also there's some some sense that it could have, it could do more, that there's a bigger potential that's not being fulfilled. Um, and so Elspeth and I sort of set out the priorities for the future we see are, you know, firstly trying to get a good sense of where are we with the evidence base? What findings can we rely on? Um, and which ones um, do we have to uh, get rid of and stop using? Um, and for whom do these findings apply? You know, there's been a lot of interest around um, this idea of weird uh, cultures. So, um this stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And a lot of the research has taken place in those cultures, but people may behave very differently in those cultures from other ones. Um, so how far do these findings apply elsewhere? Do we have better data to get more kind of sophisticated understanding of for whom things are working and why that is? Um, and then another priority is incorporating new ways of thinking into behavioral science. And one I find particularly interesting is around complexity thinking, um, which deals also deals with behavior, but looks at connections um, between people, how behaviors can spread through networks in rapid, non-linear, rapid and surprising ways. Um, I think that's incredibly powerful and we should do more to work there. And we also wrote an article recently which talks about human-centered design and how that should be incorporated more into behavioral science. And then finally, um, I think one thing is, how do, you, how do you make behavioral science kind of integral to the way organizations work? Because our view is that it is really important to the basic kind of functioning of organizations, say governments and, and companies. You know, it's not like an optional extra because it really goes to the heart of the mission of organizations behavior is really connected to that. If that's true, then you know, maybe at some point behavioral science won't be so popular. People will have another thing they're interested in. Um, but that, that importance will remain. So I think what you have to do is try and really focus on how do you mainstream or, and I don't think mainstream is the right word, but it's like incorporate this, this way of approaching problems into the core business of organizations. So in a world where people stop saying, oh, what, do we need some behavioral science here? Which of course is the wrong question because you, it's already the, the answer is yes, because you know, there's just a way of doing your operations better. You know, if people aren't ask, answering that, asking that question anymore, then it's okay because they're already there. It's already kind of built into standard ways of working. I think that's a big priority. So a lot about the, the, the whole challenge of infusion and integration and making it seamless and, and integrated as part yeah. rather than something that's different and, 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 and separate. Yeah, and, and you may need to use um, your understanding of behavioral science to get there as well in terms of influencing people within organizations. Well, we did want to thank you again so much for spending the time with us today and uh, really just wanted to end by um, seeing if there's anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with or maybe point them in the right direction to find out more about your work and your book. Yeah. Um, so thanks again for, for inviting me. The, you know, the book's available. Um, it's called Behavioral Insights. Um, if, if you want to find out more about the work of the Behavioral Insights team, I think the website is bi.team. Uh, and if you just Google me, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Um, you can send me a message or a tweet. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, 
an exciting time. And I, I really hope that some of the, you know, optimistic scenarios that we have for behavioral science play out in the next few years. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.